Matthew. Uh, turn to the book of Matthew chapter 9. Always impeccable timing, my friend. Matthew 9, verse 9. We looked at the book of Matthew tonight, first book of your New Testament. 28 chapters, 1,071 verses, 23,343 words. Author is Matthew, approximately 37 AD. That's kind of like where the traditional date is, so I'm not going to mess with that. And the author is Matthew, Matthew 9.9. We see the author mentioned here, Matthew 9.9. The Bible says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me, and he arose and followed him. So Matthew is the converted publican, the tax collector, who's sitting there receiving the money, and Jesus Christ calls him, and he follows him. And in Mark chapter 2, verse number 14, Matthew's name is called Levi. That was his name before Jesus Christ must have called him. It seems that Matthew was maybe renamed by the Lord. And Matthew means the gift of God. And... Um, it's very fitting that his name is the gift of God because only God could take a giver, could take a taker, right? Levi was a taker, right? He was taking people's money. He was at the receipt of the custom. Only God could take a taker and make him a gift, right? Only God could take a taker and make him a giver, make him a gift. And Matthew means the gift of God. Uh, you find in Matthew's gospel, you know, in one point in the book of Luke, Matthew throws this great feast. And Matthew omits that from his gospel. It seems he modestly makes no reference to that great feast. I guess there was some modesty in Matthew's part. Uh, and I think there's modesty there because when you see yourself as God's gift or when you see the gift of God, you can't boast in anything you do. I mean, how could you talk about the party you threw when you think about the, God, the party God's going to throw you in heaven? I mean, how can you think about anything you put out there when you think about what God put out there? And as, as rich or as, as affluent or as whatever, whatever Matthew might have had, Levi might have had, he throws this great feast, but he omits that from his gospel because he says, wow, Jesus Christ changed me. He made me his gift. So God gave him something. That just pales, makes everything about his life pale in comparison. Uh, now, Matthew is the first of four Gospels, and I have this over here, which you could probably barely see, so I'll just say it, but each of these four Gospels uh, present a different perspective of Jesus Christ that line up with the four beasts that are around the throne in Revelation 4. Uh, we first have, in the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ presented as the king of the Jews. He lines up with the lion right, because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and there's that lion around the throne. Uh, we have, in the book of Mark, uh, we have Jesus Christ presented as a servant, represented by that ox, that beast of burden who's around the throne. We have, in the book of Luke, who is a medical doctor, he is very fascinated with the idea of Jesus as the Son of Man, the humanity of Christ, and we see that man, that face of a man around the throne. And then finally, John is the one that's different. He represents the eagle that's around the throne, the divine, the heavenly, because he presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So we'll delve into that more as we look at each of these. But if you look at the book of Matthew, where we zero in, it really highlights how Jesus' mission is to and for the Jews. We said last week that the book of Matthew is still Old Testament doctrinally, even though your book says New Testament in terms of its index, doctrinally, we're still under the law. So if you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 10, 
If you look at 5 and 6, I'm going to point out some verses that really show you that the book of Matthew is very, very Jewish. It's Jewish in its message. It's Jewish in its audience. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse number 5. Jesus Christ is commissioning the 12, and he says, These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we have no such command. Right? The Bible says the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon them. When you were handing out tracts the other day, he wasn't like, you know, can I see your papers, please? You know, he's just handing out a tract to whoever and whomever is going to take it. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is no respecter of persons right now, right? In every nation, God says, those that fear him, he will bring his truth to. But back then, God's saying, don't go to the Gentiles. Things that are different are not the same, (laughs) That's something different going on there. Look at Matthew chapter 15, another verse about that. Fifteen twenty-four. <clears throat> <clears throat> I got to be careful with how much water I drink because I'm trying to drink half my body weight in ounces of water, and I'm doing most of that before 8 a.m., so... There were a lot of runs to the bathroom before 9 a.m. today. I'm drinking like 50 ounces of water before 8 a.m. When you get up at 5, you could do that. So i got to be careful here. If you see me run out, just finish this up. Matthew 15, verse uh, 24. Uh, Jesus, this woman comes, this uh, Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman, this Gentile woman, pleads at Jesus' feet. 24, but he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, Primarily to the Jews, the book of Matthew is. And if you go to chapter 4 of Matthew, you're going to see that what are they preaching? Obviously, they're preaching to a different crowd. Obviously, they're not going to Times Square and standing on a box and preaching to passersby. They're going just to the Israelites, just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they're preaching a very different message than we're preaching today. Not just a different audience, but a different message. They're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That is different than the gospel we preach today. We preach the gospel of the grace of God. We preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul calls it my gospel, right? Uh, But back then, they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom, a different audience and a different message. This is how you rightly divide the word of truth. Things that are different are not the same. They're not standing up there and saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Matthew 4.23, it says... And Jesus went about all Galilee, that's in Israel, teaching in their synagogues, Jewish audience, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Again, you see the sign gifts, like healing and wonders, are connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Look at uh, chapter 10, Matthew 10, verse number 7. All right, Matthew 10, verse number 7. Here he is. He's commissioned his 12. Judas is in that group, just so you know. He's commissioned his 12, and he says, And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of of heaven is at hand. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Hey, 
the king is here and the kingdom is coming. That's the message of the kingdom. There is no message there of a vicarious atonement. There is no message there of blood being shed. There is no message there of your sins being forgiven. There is no message there of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell your body. There's no message there of you being baptized into the body of Christ and sealed unto the day of redemption. The message is, hey, the king is here. The kingdom's about to come. That's the message of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's about the literal, political kingdom of heaven on earth. Something you could see and touch and be a part of. That's why it's accompanied by signs that you could see and touch and physically manifest. Because it's a gospel of the kingdom, of something earthly and physical and literal. Go to chapter 24. Now that gospel has since been put on the back burner and it's going to get put back on the front burner once we're out of here. When God takes his church out of here and closes this dispensation called the church age, however you want to label it, and begins to turn his attention back to Israel and bring that kingdom program back online because it's sitting offline right now. When he puts the kingdom program back online and resumes his work with Israel, guess what they're preaching again in the tribulation? Matthew 24 is all about the tribulation. And in Matthew 24, 13, Jesus tells them, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The kingdom will again be preached during the great tribulation until the kingdom comes when the king comes at the second coming. That's not too hard to get, is it? I don't, if anybody stood up, I didn't stand up. Nobody stood up on Sunday and said, if you endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. <laughs> we make a joke that if you make it to the end of the message, you might be saved from some heartache. But you know what? It doesn't mean that's not what we're preaching. We're preaching you can get saved right now. You must be born again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved right now. Not after you endure, you know, the Antichrist and all of his shenanigans. All right? Today, we preach the gospel of the grace of God. It's called my gospel, Paul says it. Uh, Paul's gospel. It's a different gospel. There are different gospels in the Bible. There's at least four of them talked about in the Bible. Gospel's just good news. There was good news preached to Abraham. There was good news that Moses talked about at Kadesh Barnea. There's good news that we talk about in the church age. And there's good news that's presented to Israel. There's different gospels talked about. We're preaching the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. A substitutionary death to atone for your sins. That's not what they're preaching back there. They're preaching, endure, be faithful, keep going. The Messiah is coming. The kingdom's at hand. We are preaching about a spiritual kingdom of God that doesn't exist on earth. It exists in the heart. For lo, the kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said in Luke 17. So, got to keep that difference. So, what are some key words? Fulfilled. 16 times. You know, Matthew makes at least 60 references to the Old Testament. So he's saying, look, it's fulfilled, guys. We're, something got fulfilled. Go to Matthew 27, 37. Look what they stamped. Look what they put above his, his cross. Matthew 27, 37. And set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus Christ is pictured as the King of the Jews. He's a king from the first chapter to the last chapter. He's the King of the Jews in the book of Matthew. We see the word kingdom pop up 55 times. We see the key idea or the key uh, thought of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. 
the literal political kingdom. It only appears in the book of Matthew. You never find that expression anywhere else except the book of Matthew, which is about the king coming to bring the kingdom of heaven, the political kingdom, the rule of heaven on earth. On earth as it is in heaven, right? That's what he told his disciples to pray in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, a Jewish prayer to Jewish disciples waiting for a Jewish kingdom. He said, here, after this manner, pray ye, right? On earth as it is in heaven. That's what they were praying for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The political rule of God on planet earth is the kingdom of heaven. Looking forward to it, aren't you? <laughs> Looking forward to it. But it's 32 times that expression, kingdom of heaven, and only in the book of Matthew. And the key phrase is the son of David 10 times. Because as king of the Jews, Jesus Christ had to be the son of, the, son of David. Now, the book is really easy to break down. You see it listed there. You have these two chapters in the middle that are pivotal. 11 and 12 is where the whole book turns. And 1 to 10 is the entrance of the king, his rise in Israel, his kind of ascension to notoriety. And 11, 12 is a turning point. And then from 13 to 28, you got the exit of the king. So you got his rise in Israel, 1 to 10. You got the elimination of the king where they reject him in 11, 12. And then you got his, his exit from Israel and his resignation from Israel. And now he's just drawing away from them in the rest of the book and speaking in parables. So the book breaks down really nicely. And 11 and 12, those are the pivotal chapters. It turns right there. So let's go to Matthew chapter 1 and let's just cherry pick some we're going to do some low-level flying tonight. Uh, we're going to just cherry-pick some thoughts out of these different chapters and give you some headings, maybe, to think about. Matthew 1 is all about the genealogy of the king. It starts with the genealogy of the king. It says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, see how they evoke David from the beginning, the son of Abraham, going back to Abraham, right, that Jewish father. So you notice the first big takeaway from the book of Matthew. We don't get one verse, and the big takeaway is the two books. You're going to find in your Bible there are two books. Adam's got a book. Jesus Christ has a book. Hold your place in Matthew 1.1 and go to Genesis 5.1, and you'll see there's two books. Very instructive, these two books. Which book are you in? <laughs> you got to be in the right book. Matthew, uh, Genesis 5.1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Here's Adam's book. And can I tell you, in Adam's book, everybody dies. Read the rest of the chapter. Every person mentioned except for Enoch, who's a special case, everybody dies. Adam dies, verse 5, 5-5, five, five, the first death there. Right? Adam dies, 5-5, five, five, 8, you know, there's another death. Uh, keep just going, verse 5, verse 18. Um, just keep going, verse 11. Just keep running them through, except for Enoch, everybody dies. But go to Matthew 1-1. One, one. In Matthew 1-1, one, one, in Christ's book, everybody lives. <laughs> Nobody dies in Matthew 1.1. This person begats this person, begats this one, begats this one, begats this one. You know what begat is? Somebody's born. Somebody brings forth life. Somebody lives. Why? Because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, 
shall all be made alive. So in Adam's book, everybody dies. In Christ's book, everybody gets life. The question is, what book are you in? <laughs> you got to make sure you're in the right book. If you're in the book of Adam, you're appointed unto death. If you're in the book of Christ, you're appointed unto life. Amen, amen. Next thing we see, look at Matthew chapter 1. We don't just see the two books. We see the two lines alluded to here. Matthew 1, verse 15 to 16. All right, we see here that there's an allusion there to Joseph's line, that Jesus Christ came through Joseph. And that if you hold your place there and go to Luke chapter 3, if you want to hold those two together, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, we see another line. It says, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. But the genealogy in Luke is not the same as the genealogy in Matthew. The genealogy in Matthew goes through Joseph. The genealogy in Luke goes through Mary. We've got two parents to Jesus Christ. We've got two lines. See, why do we have these two lines talked about in the Bible? We'll go back to Matthew chapter 1 and look at verse 6. And Jesse begat David, the king, and David, the king, begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Mm. And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abba, Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa. And you go all the way down, and it goes all the way down to verse 11. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. This is Joseph's line. Joseph's line is the birthright of the king. Yes, it goes back to David. It establishes Jesus Christ as a son of David. But there's a problem with this line. It's cursed. God cut this line off at Jeconiah. Remember Jeremiah 22 from last week? He said, write ye this man childless. He says, no man of his seed is going to prosper on the throne. So Solomon gives us Jeconiah. Solomon's line has a curse in it. So Jesus Christ, his could not, his, he could not come all the way through that line. He had to have another line. Now go to Luke chapter 3. I'll show you. Luke 3, 31. God's got it all covered. Don't you worry. Luke 3, 31. Which was the son of Melia, which was the son of Menon, which was the son of Mathan, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. See, Matthew's line gives us Joseph. It's cursed in Solomon. It gets cut off at Jeconiah. Luke 3 gives us Mary's line. The bloodline comes through Mary. That's the bloodline of the king. It's blessed in Nathan. God goes through a different son of David, not Solomon, Nathan. So it's two lines. They're both. That means Mary and Joseph were distant cousins. They're both of the house of David, right? Joseph establishes, yes, he was a son of David, but his father, could, he couldn't be blood-related to somebody that was cursed. So the bloodline comes through Mary, who's taken through Nathan. Isn't God wise? God wrote the Bible just like that so you would trip and break your neck if you don't want to search, right? Go to Matthew chapter 2. That's the genealogy of the king. Matthew chapter 2 is the birth of the king. It's all about the king. Matthew 2 verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men 
from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? How'd they know that? How'd they know to look? How are they so on the money? Well, those wise men of the east must have read the book of Daniel. They must have come out of Babylon. They must have been exposed to Daniel, Daniel's writings. And, and uh, it's interesting because back then, the word of God was literally leading people to Christ. And the same thing happens today. The word of God leads people to Jesus Christ. It's always the same way. It's not just the physical phenomenon. How'd they know to look for a star? They read that from the book of Genesis, the book of Numbers, that talks about this Messiah having a star, right? And in verse 9 it says, And when they had heard the king, they departed, lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. The wise men were guided to Jesus Christ by a star. The star, a star, na 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 right? It'll bring us goodness and light, right? What was it, a hot ball of gas that was able to move across the Middle East? No. Was it astral phenomenon? No. It was an angel. It's very easy. <laughs> the Bible tells you that angels are likened to stars all over the Bible. I'll give you a couple of verses. Job 38, verse 7, talks about the morning stars singing together, the sons of God shouting for joy, the angels rejoicing as, G as God laid the foundations of the earth in Job chapter 38. They're called the morning stars, right? Angels are called stars. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says, the seven stars are the angels. <laughs> so God's not pulling any punches. And have ye not read Revelation chapter 12? Talk about that great dragon. And it says, his tail drew the third part of the stars of the heaven. What is he doing? He's not pulling down a bunch of balls of gas. He's leading those angels in rebellion with him. Angels are likened to stars. And there was an angel that was guiding those wise men to where the young child was. That's not too hard. There's angels all over Jesus Christ's ministry if you study it out. So what's the takeaway? Well, back then, a light from heaven guided them to Jesus Christ. And what do we got right now? Light from heaven guides us to Jesus Christ right now. It's just not an angel. It's the scriptures. <laughs> That's your light. His word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Now look at Matthew 2.11. Let's look at verse uh, beginning of it. Because, I mean, I'm Italian, and everybody puts out their manger scene, and you got the donkey, and you got the ox, and you got the, you know, the sheep, and the lamb, and the little bambino that you don't put in before the 25th because they get struck by lightning, and you put that thing in there, and you put the baby in there, and who do you got? You got, you know, you know we three kings, right? You got to have them there too, because if not, then it's missing. At night, I'm not going to attack grandma's nativity scene. I got to, ain't nobody got time for that. But those magi weren't at the manger, you see Matthew 2.11? You find out that two years pass, approximately two years pass, before these wise men ever find the Savior. How do I know that? 2.11. And they were coming to the house. Not a manger, not a stable. He's in a house. See your 11? They saw the young child. <laughs> they found the young child, not the babe, not the infant, the young child. And it says in verse 16, 
Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under. So Herod's slaying all the kids two years and under because he knows this Messiah is probably about two years old. So he's trying to take care of business to make sure this guy doesn't usurp him. Herod knew. So there's a little bit of difference there. Uh, look at verse number 11 again. Please notice the three gifts that they bring out, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh represent the three offices that Jesus Christ fulfilled. Prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, there were three offices. Prophet, priest, and king. Very few people fulfilled all three offices, right? Samuel was a priest and a prophet, but he wasn't a king, right? But... Jesus Christ is a prophet, a priest, and a king. They brought him gold because gold is royalty. He's a king. First thing he is is a king. That's the first one they bring out. They bring out gold, frankincense, because he's a priest. Right? That was like the incense that you would use to enter into the holiest of all. Right? They bring out frankincense, that, that incense that we use to approach unto God, like Jesus Christ, our great high priest, that goes into the presence of God for us. And they bring out myrrh, which is an embalming fluid, because he's a prophet. Prophets were born to die, right? The prophets didn't have great retirement programs. Most of them, if not all of them, were killed sometimes heinously. And Jesus Christ is a prophet, a priest, and a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by the way, those are three offices that every believer in Jesus Christ fulfills. You know that? You're a prophet. You declare what God has said. You declare the words of God. You're a priest. You intercede to God on man's behalf. And the Bible says in Revelation 1.5, you're also a king, a king in waiting, but a king nonetheless, because he made us kings and priests unto God by his blood. Revelation 1.5. Matthew chapter 3. We're continuing our low-level flying here. All right? Here's the announcement of the king. The herald of the king. 3.5 is John the Baptist. Then went, out to him, then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Please notice it's happening at Jordan. Please notice Jesus Christ is baptized where Joshua crossed into the promised land, the river Jordan. That's not an accident, right? Jesus Christ is baptized where he will cross the river Jordan at his second coming. You understand when you learn the patterns, you learn the Bible. Jesus is Joshua. Joshua crossed Jordan, got into the promised land. If you follow the path of the second advent, Jesus Christ crosses Jordan and he enters into the promised land. And that's right where he's baptized. In fact, in verse number seven, if you read seven, eight, nine, he says, hey, John the Baptist is able to point to stones. He says, these stones will cry out. What stones is he talking about? He's talking about the stones that Joshua took out of Jordan when they crossed over in Joshua chapter four. They said, take out stones for a memorial. And John the Baptist says, hey, he says, he's able of these stones to raise up children. What's he pointing to? The memorial that Joshua took out of the river Jordan. It's all together. Matthew chapter 4, the preparation of the king, the, his temptation in the wilderness. Let's read a bunch of this here, shall we? 
uh, verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus said, uh, verse 8, Again the devil, devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the de devil leaveth him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I want to give you two practical takeaways from the temptation of Jesus Christ. Number one, look at verses eight and nine. He brings him up. He says, hey, Jesus, all these kingdoms are yours. You want to know what you learn about the devil right there? Number one, like Jesus Christ, the devil will tempt you with the right thing at the wrong time. Jesus Christ is going to get all those kingdoms. They were all his. <laughs> Revelation 11 says something like, right, uh, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of his Christ and of, of our God, right? So they're all going to be his. But it wasn't the right time. And that's how the devil tempts you. You want that girl, you want that guy, you want that money, you want that this. And God says, I'll give it to you. You just got to do it in my time. And where a lot of Christians get messed up is they go after the right things at the wrong time. And that's how the devil gets a lot of Christians messed up, going after the right things at the wrong time. And God says, be careful. That's how the devil rolls. He's not going to tempt you with crack cocaine. He might, but that's probably not his way in. He's going to tempt you with the right thing at the wrong time. Right? You want power. You want prestige. You want this. God says, man, you're going to rule on the earth with me. <laughs> you just don't get it now. The right thing at the wrong time. He says, I want that companionship, God. God says, I got to wait for me. I got to wait for you. It's the right thing at the wrong time, right? Sometimes, you know, kids mess around. They get a little too ahead of themselves, especially in the physical department sometimes. You know what happens? It's like, it's like, a, it's like a dad who had a $100 bill sitting on his armoire, and he, his son came in, and he steals that $100 bill, and he goes out and spends it, and the father says, hey, hey, that $100 was for you. I was going to give it to you. But you took it and you spent it. Now you got to get punished for that. Now you lost something when it was reserved for you. It was the right thing. You took it at the wrong time. All right, so be very careful with that. Number two, verse number 10, what does Jesus Christ come back with every time? It is written. It is written. It is written. And then verse 11, the devil leaves him alone for a little while. <laughs> so the first thing I see is the devil will tempt you with the right thing at the wrong time. And secondly, the devil won't succeed if you're always talking about the Bible. You know what? You just keep talking about the Bible. The devil's going to be like, I don't want to deal with this guy. He's always talking about the Bible. He doesn't want to be around you if you're always talking about the Bible. Always talking about the Bible. Always talking about the Bible. That's what Jesus Christ did. It is written. It is written. It is written. He just kept talking about the Bible, and the devil took off. Hope you got enough Bible in you to talk about. Amen. Matthew 5 to 7. The laws of the king. The constitution of the kingdom. That's what it is. I know. I learned it too at, at Mass. 
people want to make this, you know, they want to make the Sermon on the Mount, especially when you look at verses 3 to 11, right? So nice. Blessed be this. Blessed be that. Blessed be this. And blessed be that. Blessed be the meeky meek, you know. Peace be unto you. You know, blessed be this one. Blessed be this one. And I think you got to be this, you know, this guy wearing sackcloth, you know, unafraid to smile or speak above a whisper. And that's, you know, that's really, behold, the hand servant of the Lord. God says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. People, the world wants to make this Sermon of the Mount a social gospel. Love your brother. Be a peacemaker. Be a this. Be a that. Did they miss verse 22? 22 is about hellfire. You want to spiritualize that for me? You want to spin that for me, right? Jesus Christ talks about calling his brother fool shall be in danger of hellfire. It's the first time Jesus Christ mentions hellfire. He does it right in the beginning of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, which is supposed to be about this meeky machina, you know, love your neighbor. I know it's, it's Italian, right? Uh, this little, you know, meeky, you know, blessed be the peacemaker, blessed be the poor, blah, 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 the beatitudes, right? They're nice, they're good, but that's not what this is about. Because smack dab in the middle of it, God says, I'm going to burn you up. That doesn't, they don't ever refer to that part. They miss that part. Because this talks about hellfire and stuff like that. Why? Because this is the description of the millennial government. This is the government of the millennium. And guess what? In the millennium, you step out of line, you're going to go to hell. You're going to burn. You're going to get thrown in the ash heap, the garbage dump God's going to have on planet Earth. You're going to burn. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. It's the, look at the end of it. The end of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, the end of this constitution of the kingdom, ends with a warning to a house. Right? 724. He's just spoken for three chapters. And then he says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. What house is he talking about? The house of Israel. That's who he's directly talking about. Yes, you build your house on a rock. You know, I know, a wise man built his house upon a rock. I know that. And the rains came down and the floods came up. I know the songs we sing and we talk about building your family on a rock, building your life on a rock, and there's wonderful spiritual devotional applications and none of them, I'm not taken away from that. But the Bible's given for doctrine first. Jesus Christ has just stood up and told his nation, here's how my kingdom's going to be played out, and if you, house of Israel, don't build on what I'm telling you, you're going to fall. And that's what the warning is at the end of the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 8 and 9 are the credentials of the king. The credentials of the king. We've got the Old Testament signs that were promised to Israel as confirmation when their Messiah would come. That's what he's doing here. Why? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22 for the Jew requires a sign, right? The Jews require a sign. Ever since their establishment as a nation, they were taught to look for signs. Moses is establishing them as a nation. He says, hey God, how are they gonna believe me? God gives them signs. God gave Moses signs, physical manifestations of miraculous things to confirm what he was saying. And when Jesus Christ shows up to confirm what he was saying to a Jewish audience that had been trained to look for signs, he shows them miracles and wonders and healings and all these amazing things to confirm that, hey, what I'm saying is the message from God, just like Moses, right? You see that? That's not happening in the church age. 
We walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians tells us. But not there. They got some sight mixed in. God told them, these signs shall follow them that believe, right? He tells those apostles, you're going to follow me with signs following. It said, the Bible says at the end of the book of Mark, I'm talking way too fast. At the end of the book of Mark, I want to fit this all in. At the end of the book of Mark, he says, the Lord was working with them with sign, confirming the word with signs following. So they picked up Jesus Christ's ministry to the Jewish nation, and they start doing miracles as well. Why? Because the nation had been trained to say, how do I know you're telling the truth? Show me a sign. They knew that all the way back since Moses when the nation was founded in Exodus 4. See, the Bible's not hard to understand. You just got to be willing to believe it the way it's written. Right? Don't bring your preconceptions into it, into your, your prejudices into it. You say, but I saw this guy. Yeah, you saw something in that stadium, you saw something, you should hold on to your wallet, or you saw a devil. You know how you know that guy's a devil, or a liar, or a charlatan? What, if you had, I'm just, I'll get back to this in a second. If you had the power to heal people, Amen. why in the world would you set up a campaign and charge people money? Why aren't you down at the ninth floor of Sloan Kettering and get all those kids up, guess what? You wouldn't have to solicit a penny. They'd give you their money right there. They'd fall down and worship you right there. But these lying, two-faced hypocrites stand up there with their white suits and their bad comb-overs, and they want to jump out there into how great thou art and try to pretend they're healing people and tell people that don't get healed, you just didn't have enough faith. You lying. If, if you're not saved, if you're not saved, you better get saved because there's a special place in hell reserved for you that you tell somebody down and out, oh, you just didn't have enough faith, ma'am, to be healed. I'm sorry, give me a few more installments of your, your husband's you know, uh, life insurance policy. You dirty, rotten scoundrel, right? Okay, I'm done. All right, Matthew, Matthew 9, 35. Matthew 9, 35. <clears throat> and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. See it? And healing every sickness. See that? Every sickness. <laughs> he even raised the dead. How much faith does a dead man have? Hmm. <laughs> right? Um, 35. Uh, every sickness and every disease among the people. So after he lays out the kingdom, 5, 6, and 7, 8 and 9, Jesus Christ is confirming himself now with signs. With signs. With signs. Now watch something. Matthew chapter 8. Go back to Matthew 8. Look at verse 14. Matthew 8, 14. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, it's not in Rome, and when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his... Oh, oh almost choked. Almost choked on that word. He saw his... Can't say it. He saw his... His... Sound it out, Pat. His wife's mother, because Peter was married, so much for the first pope, right? Peter's wife's mother laid in sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. So please notice here that Jesus Christ could heal with a touch. But look at verse 16. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word. He could heal with a touch. He could heal with his word. You know what that tells me? Jesus Christ is the word of God. His touch 
and his word are the same. His power and his touch, his physical body, and his power and his word. The incarnate word and the written word are awfully close. They're awfully close. They're off. You say, I just want a touch from Jesus Christ. Read your Bible. That's how you get a touch, right? Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. The preaching of the king. The kingdom is preached by the 12. And you see verse 4 and 5. You see who's in that number? Oh, don't you see who's in that number? Judas Iscariot is in that number. He's right there. Jesus Christ called him a devil in John chapter 6. He's right there, right in the midst. There's a lot of messages there, but here's the one I want you to take away. Verse number 8. You know what he tells them? With Judas in the number, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely give. Judas was in that number. Judas was doing those miracles. Judas had the apostolic sign gifts. You get me? You get my drift? Judas had the apostolic sign gifts, just like Peter. It wasn't like Peter's raising people from the dead and Judas is slapping them going, it's not working for me. No, he's doing the same thing. It's working for him too. He's got the same gifts. What does that tell me? Don't ever think the devil can't heal. Don't ever think the devil can't do miracles. Don't ever think the devil can't do things that even look godly. Because when you read your Bible, you find about the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, he comes after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. He's going to raise people from the dead. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to open the eyes of the blind, and they're going to fall down and worship him. Man, I heard somebody say this, and it's true. The only thing that's probably keeping us from worshiping the Antichrist is the rapture. Because if somebody walked across like that, you might not be able to tell them apart. He'd be so close. He'd be so believable. He'd be more subtle than any creature that the Lord God had made. You'd see this guy with the meekest, most humble smile, the most gentle voice, the most calm spirit, just raising people from the dead. He'll be the one walking into Sloan Kettering and bringing those kids off those oxygen vents, and people will worship him. And you probably would too, if not for that Bible. If not for that Bible. Matthew 11 and 12, the pivotal chapters. The rejection of the king and his kingdom. These are the pivotal chapters of the whole book. 28. You're like, how is he going to get this done? He's only on chapter 11. Just watch. (laughs) Just watch. (laughs) I think I'm going to do it. I'm landing the plane. Matthew 11, 28. Here's the king's invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, I love that verse. I read it in my book today. Just spoke sweet. Yeah, it's a nice verse. Beautiful verse. We use it all the time. We use it at the mission. Use it on the street. Great verse. What's the doctrine of that verse? That is Jesus Christ inviting Israel to receive him as king and get the millennial rest that was promised when the kingdom came. Come unto me and I'll give you rest. I'll put your enemies down. I'll make you the head and not the tail. I'll set this thing up just like it was under David and Solomon, but better But in chapter 12, the king and his kingdom are rejected. 12, interesting, it's at chapter 12. The nation of Israel, 12 is their number. 12, 23. And all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Beelzebub means Lord of the flies. Let's you know what devils are like. Lord of the flies. Right? And verse number 31. Wherefore, Jesus speaking now. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Guess what? The king and his kingdom are rejected. They attribute the works of Christ to the devil. They attribute the work. He says, if I, with the Spirit of God, cast out devils, the kingdom of God has come unto you. And they say, no, you're used of Satan. And blaspheming the Holy Ghost. They are attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Jesus Christ says, be careful. And then in chapter 13 through 25, see that? See how I did that? 13 to 25, the kingdom goes into parables. The kingdom goes into mystery form. And the king begins to resign himself from the nation once they've rejected him. You see, God will never impose himself on anyone. The Lord's a gentleman. These Calvinist nut jobs who think that God, he is this irresistible will, you are, I don't know, you took your Bible, rolled it up, and smoked something with it because you don't read your Bible anywhere where God doesn't give man a choice. It's choice from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's all about choice. God will never overpower your will. Never. God has a will. He's a right to decide things too. He says, hey, if you do that, I'm going to do this. But, God, but you always have a will. And God will never overpower that will. So God says, hey, come unto me. You don't want me? I'm going to scramble your brain. Amen. And he just starts talking in parables. Matthew 13, the number of rebellion. Verse 1, the same day went Jesus out of the house. <laughs> what a picture. After the rejection, the king goes out of the house. <laughs> Jesus Christ is resigning himself and stepping away from the house of Israel because they've rejected him. Formally, they've rejected him. Verse 3, and he spake many things unto them in parables, dark sayings. From here on, it's been easy to follow up until this point. But 13 on, it's mysterious. Where even the disciples are like, could you just declare that unto us again? You can't understand what he's talking about now without the word of God interpreting it for you. You get me? Right? You need the word of God to interpret things. And in verse number 10, look what happens. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For the heart, for this people's heart is waxed gross, fat, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes, they have closed. See that? They have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. Jesus Christ is quoting a prophecy from Isaiah 6, which means God's shutting the door on them. That's the same prophecy 
that Paul quotes in Acts chapter 28 when the door is slammed shut on the nation of Israel and God's going to the Gentiles. He says, you're going to see, but you're not going to see. You're going to hear, but you're not going to understand. Why? Because something's wrong with your heart. You could take tremendous lessons for that for yourself. You know what? You and I could look at the same verse, and one person's got the right heart, and one person's got the wrong heart, and one person gets a blessing, and the other person yawns. What's the difference? It ain't the seed. It's the ground. It's the heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Notice, please, in verse number 13, in Matthew 13, 13, he says, Therefore speak I to them in parables. Israel's rebellion, number 13 is the number of rebellion, is the cause of their blindness and Jesus Christ speaking to them in parables. Matthew 26. So 13 to 25 are all these parables. Matthew 26, the king is betrayed. He's betrayed by Judas. He's betrayed by the disciples in the garden. He's betrayed by Peter at the judgment hall. And before you sit there and get too judgmental, how many times have you betrayed him? Matthew 27, is the king crucified? When the king of glory wore your crown and took your place on the cross. Wow, 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 wow. That's your crown he wore. Matthew 28, the king is resurrected. Verse number six, Matthew 28, six. Let's look at verse 5. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. <laughs> the king was resurrected just like he said he would be resurrected. Hallelujah, right? The king said, if it were not so, I would have told you. It, the, the angel says right there, he's up from the grave just like he said. They didn't get it, but he told them. Verse number 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The king has all power now. He's defeated death. He has the keys of hell and of death. Keys are a symbol of authority. And he says, All power is given unto me. Now he's got all that power. Right? He is that king of glory. Verse number 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Please notice it's one name with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. The name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Please notice the Jewish book of Matthew ends with Jesus Christ on the earth. He doesn't ascend like he does in Luke. He doesn't ascend like he does in Mark. He's on the earth in Matthew because Matthew is about the Jew inheriting the earth and the king bringing in the kingdom. So it fits that Jesus Christ is on the earth at the end of the book because it's all about the Jew inheriting the earth. So one big idea from the book of Matthew. Go to chapter 27, and I will get you out on time. All right, Matthew 27, verse 22. One big idea. Ready? This is powerful, man. I heard Pastor Dean preach a message on this many years ago. 27, 22. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? 
Your future depends on how you answer that question. What are you going to do with the king? Pilate asked the greatest question in the world. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? That's a question we all got to wrestle with. What are you going to do with this king? What are you going to do with this Christ? What are you going to do with this Savior? Because listen, if Jesus Christ is the king he claims to be, this is the most important question of all time. What am I going to do with this king that's going to come set up a kingdom? What am I going to do with this king that's going to inherit the earth? What am I going to do with this king who's got all power in heaven and earth? You've got to deal with the king. What are you going to do without it? 23. And the governor said, why? What evil hath he done? Because they want to crucify him. But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude. If you ever read Dante's Inferno, Pilate is still in hell in Dante's poem, washing his hands. Um, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See to it. They answered, then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Nine words. Israel rejects the king and has paid an awful price. They didn't do the right thing by the king. They said, ah, kill him and let his blood be on us and on our children. God said, okay, that's what you want. And for the past 2,000 years, those people have experienced hell on earth. I mean, you just read about in World War II, Treblinka, Auschwitz, Dachau, right? That was like, that was hell on earth, people. Right? That was hell on earth. That was rough. I mean, you see what's going on today is barbaric and wicked and crazy. And, that, and hopefully I'll get stomped out sooner than later. But that was years of systematized genocide. It was like hell on earth. God said, you want it? And it's not just Hitler, Stalin, pogroms. They've been chased all over the world for millennia, the Jews. You want my blood upon you? You want that guilt upon you? You're going to have hell on earth. What are you going to do with Jesus, which is called Christ? Crucify him. Yeah, let his blood be on son of children. Hey, I'm not condoning that. That doesn't justify anti-Semitism. That's wicked, right? Hating the Jew is wicked. That's wrong. But I'm saying God laid some things on those people. God says, you reap what you sow. What are you going to do with Jesus, which is called Christ? You want to just kill him? Okay. You're going to reap what you sow, people. And they have. If the sinner rejects the king, you know what he does when that king sits on that awful, when that, he sits on that throne? When that king sits on that great white throne, you know what that king is going to say? Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The nation might have gotten hell on earth, but that sinner who rejects the king, he gets hell in the hereafter. He's going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And people are still burning that burned 100 years ago. And people in hell, like Pilate, people in hell, like the rich man of Luke 16, are still burning, still weeping, still gnashing, still crying out because they rejected the king. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? I think it would be a good idea to bow the knee and receive him, not just as Savior, but make him your Lord, right? Because if the saint refuses to submit to the king, he will pay in this life, and the next. Oh, not your soul. You'll go to heaven. But a believer in rebellion against the king can lose peace, lose blessings, and if he pushes God far enough, he loses life. God will take him. 
Somebody said one time, some Christians live their life and God crowns them when they go home. Some Christian, some Christians who don't want to live for God, God crowns them and then takes them home. You see the difference? Right? God says, if you're going to live in rebellion against me, I'm just going to keep taking away all my goodness and withdrawing all my hand. And I want some Christians just push it so far that God lets them, lets them die because they're just making a mess of too much. A believer in rebellion can ruin things in this life. And a believer in rebellion against the king can lose his rewards at the judgment seat of Christ in the next life. If he's a king, you just got to submit to the king. Got to yield to the king. Bow the knee to the king. He's a good king. He's a gracious king. He's a kind king. What are you going to do with Jesus, which is called Christ, the king of the Jews? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you today for your son, the Lord Jesus. Pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, you might just get some glory out of this. Help us to take away some truth in the book of Matthew and just bow our hearts and our minds and our, just our spirits, Lord, to your leadership in our lives. We've made you our savior, but help us make you our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.